I think I actually counted properly that time, so that's cool. Well done. <laughs> uh, you know what I find really kind of crazy um, no. and, and funny, I guess I should say crazy, but kind of funny to watch all through the Google I.O. It is called I.O., right? It is, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Because um, I always, it's like the on-off switch. Um, so it's like, is it 1-0 or I.O., whatever. Um, a, a lot of these different announcements that Google's making, um, some of the graphics, uh, hey, press this button on Google Cardboard. It works with any phone. <laughs> right? Or we've got the Android Wear that you don't need a phone for. Take that, Apple. Uh -huh. You know, all of that, all of that kind of thing, all throughout, uh, all throughout their events. So just, I don't know, I find that kind of funny. Oh, you know what? Actually, before we really get into the podcast, I should show you I um, something kind of cool. I don't usually do a lot of DIY stuff. This would be a perfect time for us to have the video, uh, the video podcast, oh, portion yeah. so everybody could see this. So what I'm holding up is um, the trolley for a, a video slider, you know, like you mount. Mm -hmm. I have this pistol grip, um, like fluid head, tripod head that mounts on top of this trolley and I throw my camera on top of it. This is a, a trolley for a rail system that I've built. So these are like skateboard wheel bearings on the bottom. I don't know if you hear them mm -hmm. spinning, hear them spinning into the microphone. Yep. Um, these are piece of junk skateboard wheel bearings though. But anyway, I built this. It's the first time I've done something quite like this. Uh, built it, spray painted it. And right now, this these wheels are actually wheels from like a Target skateboard, like a little $15 Target skateboard. Um, and I'm waiting because these bearings, they are, they're made of like zinc or something. They're absolute garbage. So when I wheel this down my track, I, with the camera on it, it just like, it's a very subtle shake. So it looks like every shot that I'm getting and sliding is sort of taken in an earthquake. Uh, so not not workable. I'll put it to you that But getting way. there, not bad though. Right, yeah, and it looks good too. So what I did was I went online and I just searched for like high quality West Coast skate shop. That's where all the good ones are, right? Mm. So I ordered myself a good set of black wheels. So the black wheels will fit and match a little bit better because all the, the rail system that I showed you, it's all black. Um, and the skate wheels I got are also black. Oh, I'm sorry. I just said the skate wheels are black. But I got high-quality bearings, like steel or whatever it is. They're much more expensive. And they should just – they're like called million – I forget what they're called. Million-mile bearings or something crazy like that. Uh, but I thought it was pretty sick. Um, you know, And this slider, it's like 900 bucks. Not, I mean not the one I made. It was more <laughs> like it was more like 65 bucks or 70 bucks um, at plus 30 bucks for the tripod head, which I just got from B&H. Uh, so it's pretty sweet. I'll have to like – I don't That's know. I'm, I'm thinking about doing like a blog post about it. Um, and just kind of share what I learned and put the recipe of how I built it up. But I'm doing a shoot uh, this weekend, and I'm going to use it, a video shoot, and I'll see how it works. Right now, the one thing I would like to add is a way to mount it right onto a tripod. Um, I don't mm. have that. I have to like drill and tap a, a hole in the center, in the center bracket, so I could screw it. You know, so you have like your traditional uh, tripod plate. I can just you know screw that right up into the hole on the uh, the whole slider and hold it. But I just want to make sure that it'll stay level and everything like that. Um, but Pretty sweet. I'm pretty jazzed about how it turned out. That's so pretty, pretty impressive. Cool. Yeah, I would so. have no idea how to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway. So, welcome to the 16th episode of the We Geeks podcast. I'm Nathaniel Dodson. He's Howard Pinsky. And you can follow us, as always, on Twitter. I'm at Tutvid. He is at Iceflow Studios. I-C-E-F-L-O-W-S-T-U-D-I-O-S. Is that correct? I think so. I, I think, don't know. I wasn't I, paying attention. I, the, the important part of it is that the F is lowercase and ice flow is one word. Well, then again, if you're on Twitter, it's all one word, but 
And all lowercase usually. It is, yeah. And if, but if you're typing up my company name, it's Iceflow, one word, lowercase f, studios. Right. I just it drives like, me crazy. Right. Last <laughs> week I spelled my Twitter handle and then you said or you asked me if I was going to spell it your Twitter handle, Twitter handle and I was just kind of like, no. And I, it was kind of like old curmudgeon-y sounding. And I, so I just figured this week I would spell it out just so everybody knew I wasn't a jerk. Not that anybody thought I was, but whatever. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash tutvid. And I believe you're facebook.com slash Studios, Studios, correct? Yep. Um, We're on all the, th- all the things. Most right. of my things are Iceflow Studios. Some of them are Howard Pinsky, so I'm trying to convert over to my actual name. But right. Be a little more personal. These, yeah, I still can't get the Howard Pinsky Twitter handle or even the Pinsky Twitter handle. It's been inactive since like 2007. Or the dot com. Yeah, don't even mention. <laughs> I have HowardPinsky.com, but not Pinsky.com. The guy will, will oh, not. Gotcha. I offered him three grand for a domain name that's been literally inactive since I think it was like 2008. He will mm. not take it. Wow. Well, tell the good people how they can follow the podcast, would you? We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. You can find us at soundcloud.com slash wegeeks where you can comment along as we're discussing things so we can read those comments, respond to those comments. You can also find us on iTunes and we do read iTunes reviews every single week. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten a new one yet. I did realize actually that international iTunes users in order to read those reviews, you have to log into the international stores, which is really annoying. But there is a service out there that I might sign up to that will allow you to read reviews across all the different stores. So I'll, I'll definitely okay. check that out. But head over to iTunes, leave us a review if you love the podcast. And we're also on Patreon, which allows us to really possibly have two podcasts a week or give out more gift cards, more expensive gift cards, all that stuff. We're up to five Patreon supporters, which is pretty cool. So I want to give a big shout out to Valdis, which are, who's our $25 patron, Michael, Jordan, Genevieve, and Caleb. Actually, Caleb has submitted a few questions to the podcast, so it's nice to see him jumping on the Patreon whatever you call it, bandwagon, I don't know. Yeah, thing. sure. He, yeah, Caleb, I've seen him around Twitter. He's a beast on Twitter as well. Uh, and also, anything that we talk about here today, which we're going to jump into in just a second, you can check out over at tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 16, and that's the number 16. There you go. So today, anything going on today? What happened today? Something happened today. Oh, a whole a whole lot of stuff happened today. Stuff, stuff. There's an Apple keynote, right? No, no, it was a Google keynote. But it just felt, it actually felt like an Apple keynote there to were, an extent. There were a lot of beautiful graphics. There were, and actually that was one thing that kind of separated the Google I.O. keynote, which was today, or actually it was today at the time of recording. It's actually May 28th. And Apple's keynote's very simplistic, very clean, but Google, before anyone even took the stage, they had this massive extravagant video and graphics. It was basically like this this these screens that surrounded the the whatever you call it, the conference center. It was quite impressive. Um, but yeah, Google had their keynote today, Google I.O., mainly for developers, and you know. TLDR, Too Lazy Didn't Read. It was basically an Apple keynote. Um, There were a lot of announcements, and a lot of it was directed directly at Apple to compete with them. Some of the stuff was completely new, and some of it really isn't competing with Apple. 
But, and I'll get to some of that in a minute. We're going to kind of go down the list, but I do think it's good for the, it, the competition's good. Um, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter saying Google's just copying Apple and Apple's copying Google. And yeah, to an extent, you can argue that Google is copying Apple in some things and Apple has copied a lot from Google. Steve, but I think it's... Steve Jobs would be proud if Google's copying Apple because didn't he say good artists copy and great artists steal? Or was that Pablo Picasso he was quoting? I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Google announced a ton of things, and let's kind of go down the list. I'm actually referencing an article from The Verge, which I'll, uh, Nathaniel will have on his website. I'll put in the show notes and all that stuff. So they started off with a bunch of updates and you know how things are going. I'm not going to bother with that stuff. But the stuff they actually announced, they started with Android M, which is their obviously Android is their operating system, and they've kind of gone down the alphabet. I think the latest one was Lollipop, I think mm-hmm. it was. Yep. And now M is coming out. They haven't announced what that M is going to stand for. Usually it's something sweet. I'm not, what do you, what do you think it might be? I'm thinking maybe like marmalade, something Milky exciting. Way, maybe. Milky Way. Because you, know, had, you had like the, Jelly Bean, Kit Kat, Lollipop, and now M. Or Mars, maybe. Yeah, Mars. I wonder if they're going to team up with another company. (laughs) And Milky Way is interesting. Maybe even Mars, too, because they they did focus a lot on space stuff. One of their their graphics that was going through, it was like very spacey. So I don't know, maybe. I kind of like Marmalade. But anyways, so the first thing they announced were better app permissions. So right now on the Android app, app... Operating system? I kind of like that. The operating system, when you install an application and launch it for the first time, or maybe even before you launch it, basically there was the, there's this screen that pops up and saying, this app needs permission to do boom, 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 boom. It lists a bunch of different things, and you basically have to agree to it. Mm-hmm. And th- it doesn't really allow you to agree to specific things and not agree to specific things. And this is something that Apple in iOS has done very well. When you go to an app in iOS and the app wants to use the microphone or the camera, you basically get different pop-up windows for each thing, which could seem annoying, but if you're looking at it from a privacy standpoint, is actually very helpful. So if you don't want an app like Facebook accessing your microphone at all times, when that time comes that Facebook needs your microphone, you can say yes or no, and then later on, you can always go back into your settings and turn that feature off. So Google has now brought that, basically exactly that model, to Android M. And that's one of the things I tweeted on on Twitter this morning. I said, Google basically took what Apple has in iOS in terms of privacy and brought it to Android. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a bad thing. This is not, I'm not saying Google's copying Apple, Google sucks, blah, blah, blah. I think this is a good thing because Android needs extra privacy. I mean, it's a very private, it's a very secure operating system for the most part anyway, but it's nice to see that Google's recognizing, you know, Apple's done something well. We're going to bring that over to Android because it's the right thing to do. So, sure, Google's copying Apple, but it's the right move. Right. When companies compete, we win. Of course, yeah. Now, if they would only figure out their fragment fragmentation issue, they actually showed a graphic at the beginning of the keynote where they they had this like massive elaborate thing with a bunch of dots floating into a single point, and that was it represented all the different Android devices out there. There was like four thousand Android devices or something like that. Yikes. And I'm thinking to myself, they can have this exact same graphic for the different operating systems that are actively out there right now because it drives me crazy. I have an Android device, and whenever Google updates to a new operating system. Let's say they release Android M tomorrow, which they won't, by the way. I will not be able to update to Android M until LG, 
who makes my Android phone allows me to update because they have to mold Android for their apps and their stuff. And that could be months, which is incredibly frustrating. That's why a very small percentage of Android users are on the latest operating system. Very frustrating. So moving down the list, we now have Chrome in all your apps. So right now, if you're in an Android app and you click on a link, it'll basically give you a bunch of options. You can either open it in Chrome, which goes out of the app, opens it up in Chrome. Then you have to go back into the app using multitasking. Or if the developer is very advanced, they can build their own app, uh, web browser within the app, which is kind of slow, kind of clunky, and they all look different. But now what Android is allowing developers to do is basically use Chrome directly in the app. And the demo looked actually very, uh, very smart and fast. So basically if Google detects that there's an a app, sorry, a website link within the app, it'll preload that stuff. So if you do click on it, Chrome kind of slides out from the right and you're able to browse that website very quickly, very seamlessly. And then you can just kind of hide Chrome and go right back to your, what you're doing. So it's, I believe Apple has something very similar. I do know mm -hmm. when I'm in, in an app, um, I don't know if it's something that the developer has to build themselves or Apple provides that SDK. Yeah, I mean, I know in like Facebook, uh, for instance, you click on a link, a lot of times it's like an in-Facebook Safari that opens up. Right, and Twitter has something similar in the, the Twitter app, which is not the twi official one that I use, mm -hmm. has something similar. But they all kind of look different, so I'm thinking maybe they're building these web browsers separately, so maybe Apple will bring over some sort of Safari SDK into apps eventually. Gotcha. Uh, the next thing that they or announced was better battery life and USB-C. What it sounds like they're doing is either all future Android devices or a lot of future Android devices, they're switching over to USB-C, which we actually, I believe, saw for the very first time with the new MacBook. And it's no, really I think, becoming... I think the Google Pixel Notebook had the... It had two of the USB-C ports, actually. I think that was before... Uh, or at least right before Apple's. MacBook oh yeah, Pro I think it was like right around the same time. Yeah, so I think yeah. I think I think Google was the first one to debut that particular feature. But I mean, there I mean, you know, it's one A and one B between Google and Apple when it comes to USB C, which I think is you know we can pretty well uh, predict is going to be the future of most data transfer or a lot of data transfer and power transfer stuff because it's kind of like the one size fits all cable for everything. Which, quite frankly, I'll be kind of happy with. You know, I mean, how frustrating is when you need to find like a mini DV to this port, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or a, or a USB 3 to that or a, an HDMI here to an HDMI. And not that maybe USB maybe won't re replace uh, HDMI, but it probably will because it's a huge amount of data that USB-C uh, transfers. So it seems like it – I don't know. I'm pretty excited about USB-C. I know a lot of people are frustrated because they're like, ah, oh, I just got to buy a new power adapter for everything. Look at what Apple does again. But if you know those people really should – Take note, it is something Google's doing, and in fact, I think Google did um, even a little bit before Apple um, when it comes to that, but yeah. Yeah, I think they were all working on this. I think it's one thing that they kind of all agreed on, that there needs to be an industry standard. I mean, realistically, the industry standard should be no wires at all, but we're far from that point. But yeah, I mean, people will be frustrated that they have to buy new adapters, but think of it for like five years down the line, you won't have to buy any new adapters because everything will be USB-C. The right. only thing I really don't like about USB-C, and maybe it's just a small thing, is that on the new MacBook, because it's USB-C now and because it transfers power and data and all that stuff, it they got rid of MagSafe. 
And yes. I absolutely love MagSafe, but maybe they'll find a way to make it, make it magnetic. But anyways, so most or if not all of future Android devices will have USB-C which transfers power and data and all that fun stuff. And um, apparently they, they're going to have better battery life in Android M. I don't know exactly how that works. Yeah, I saw. Wise. Yeah, I saw something that said basically, you know, it'll detect the hours that you're typically not using the phone theoretically when you're not, you know, when you're asleep or you have mm, it down right. or whatever, and then it'll go into like a deeper sleep dozing or something, but it can still respond to like high priority messages and use, you know, the, the whatever the Android alarm system built in or something. Um, so therefore, it'll be able to save additional battery, whatever. Something like that. Better battery life, always good. USB-C, frustrating right now in my opinion, but I guarantee you two or three years down the line, we're all going to be thrilled with this change. Yeah. And it, like you said, it's not just Google, it's not just Apple. It really seems to be an industry standard, which is amazing. Yeah, awesome. Next, this thing is actually kind of cool. It kind of blew my mind. It's something... So Google has... Have, has had this feature called Google Now for a while where you can basically ask Google questions. It'll tell you a bunch of things. It'll kind of give you updates on your day and this sort of thing. Now they have something called Google on tap and it's actually quite brilliant. At the same time, kind of creepy. So if you're in an application or you're in a web browser, basically Android is going to analyze the information that's on the screen and it will allow you to very easily get information on that information, which sounds crazy. So some of the examples that were shown during the keynote is someone sent a text message or someone's husband sent her a text message or whatever it might be. And Google now was able to analyze the screen and it was able to detect that there was a restaurant or some sort of food within the text messages. There was also a I believe the example was make sure to pick up the dry cleaning after work. So it was able to hold down, she was able to hold down the home button and Google now slid up this little card from the bottom with both of those, both that information. So first it said, it basically said, we detected that your husband mentioned this restaurant in the text message and here are the ratings, here are the Yelp reviews, here's how to contact the restaurant. And then below, it basically also said, we also noticed that your husband wants you to pick up the dry cleaning after work, set a reminder. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of crazy how it's able to analyze everything on the screen and it doesn't like, you know, throw that stuff in your face without you wanting to know more information. But if you do want to know more information about anything's on the screen, you don't have to like select something, copy it, paste it into another browser or use a different application to set a reminder. You just hold down the home button or I think you can speak to it as well and Google will start recognizing this stuff and throw that information at you very intelligently. I'm looking forward to the Tumblr pages set up for all the weird stuff it ends up doing too. <laughs> I mean, for instance, I've got, I have two people named Melanie in my, my phone contacts. One is my wife. One is this other woman named Melanie. And whenever I tell Siri to call my wife, I only have one Melanie set as my wife. However, it somehow gets them confused. So when I say, Siri, call my wife, it says, which wife? And it oh. lists both Melanie's. Um, and I have one wife, so therefore it should, you know, default to the one wife who I have set in Siri, um, but it doesn't. So yeah, but no, it'll be kind of, I, I, I think that'll be pretty cool because I'm sure there's gonna be all kinds of, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff that, that it's able to do too. Oh, I'm sure we're still at some, we're still at a very weird point where autocorrect and Siri and Google now does, isn't, I don't know if you saw my post. I, on, I did. You I did. saw that? Yeah. I have to, I'm not going to say the word, but I have to. So my, 
I've basically been speaking back and forth between my mom and my parents um, about going to Canada for certain reasons. And then coming here, them coming here, I'm also in the process of getting uh, diagnosed with heart problems and stuff like that. Um, so my mom texts me and she basically says, let me know when you decide your plans. Plus, dad and I want to book this August book August this weekend so we can pin down a date. And I was driving at the time, so I didn't want to start typing and get in an accident. So I just held down my um, held down the button to talk to Siri and I basically narrated what I wanted to reply. Mm. And I meant to say, I'm waiting to hear back from my doctor before I book anything. You guys can book anytime beginning of August, blah, 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 blah. Siri, for whatever reason, I don't use this word very often, but Siri corrected it to, I'm waiting to hear back from my doctor before I F anything. And you can you know, fill in the blank. I don't know what happened. I don't know why Siri decided to correct it to that word, but it just kind of proves that we're still in a very strange spot where even though it's detecting the majority of the words and it's trying its best to autocorrect to what it thinks it should autocorrect to, mm-hmm. it clearly, that, that I'm happy I caught that before I pressed oh, send. I was going to say, it would have been hilarious <laughs> if that went through to your mother and she's like, but the, but the reply, I posted on social media and peop, <laughs> a lot of people were like, you should you probably check with your doctor before you do that too. Because, <laughs> you know, I do have a heart condition. So anyways. Um, oh, I get where you're going. <laughs> you get where I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm just not following you down that road. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to have to like flag this to rated PG-13 or something. So moving on from that, the next thing I think is absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. And Google Photos. Um, Apple obviously has their new Photos app, which I've used. It's uh, it's okay. I mean, it's a... It's not like an aperture or a Lightroom. It kind of lets you do very basic photo editing. But that aside, it has decent storage capabilities and it has decent organization and stuff like that. But it's not great and it doesn't let you back up a lot. iCloud has limitations. I think it's five gigabytes I think you get for free. Then you got to pay a dollar a month for another 25 or something like that, which still isn't a lot when you're dealing with high quality photos. So Google answered back and Google answered back very heavily today with Google Photos. Name the same, but you know it's a Photos app, so what, are you, what else are you going to call it? So basically, it's a storage device or a storage application which allows you to store, organize, and search your photos. But here's the big thing, because you know all that is fine. It works great. I've been using it for the last few hours. Google is offering unlimited storage for your photos and videos for free, and the photos can be up to 16 megapixels each and videos up to 1080p. And this isn't just for people who have an Android device. This is available for Android and iOS. It's available right now. I actually downloaded it a few hours ago, synced all my photos. They synced with my Google Plus account, and it was incredibly seamless. And, I mean, unlimited photos and videos for free, that's huge. Yeah, it's almost kind of like a why not just sign up for it and do it and set, you know, set your stuff to back up to it or back up manually if you have to every once in a while. 
I mean, if it's free and it's unlimited, why not? I know there's a limitation on the 16 megapixels. Most of your photos you're going to be uploading are probably going to be less than 16 anyway. Yeah, um, especially and, mobile and, photos. Right, and most people, the video is not going to be greater than 1080p, at least not at this point in time. And when it gets to the point where huge numbers of people are using 2.5K or 4K video anyway, um, Google's going to expand. I mean, if they've gone unlimited to this point, they will go unlimited to that point. Um, I, I also saw there's going to be an auto-tagging feature for this as well. Um, and it, I don't think we talked about it in last week's podcast, but I know I saw an article. Flickr had released a type of auto-tagging. Um, and it was, it was kind of a fiasco because it was like putting, you know, racist and I'm putting, you know, this in, in, in air quotes because everything that people don't like is racist or politically incorrect in some way, shape or form. Um, racist tags on different things. You know, it was identifying concentration camps as like, you know, sports park or amusement park. Uh, you know, black, at one point, it, or probably not at one point, probably multiple points, there's black people, African Americans, whatever the politically correct term is. Um, in photos and was identifying them as, you know, like spider monkey or chimpanzee or ape. Um, so you could imagine people when they saw that were not necessarily happy. Um, I don't know how technology can be racist. It's just kind of like a, a glitch in the algorithm or maybe uh, Flickr wasn't quite as specific as they should have been when they initially uh, kind of set everything up. So, I mean, nothing that's like you're going to blow your doors off as far as being offensive, more or less embarrassing. Uh, you know, from Flickr's standpoint, because it's like, whoops, guys, we didn't mean to do that. And Flickr's response was something like, well, you can just go in and untag whatever is offensive. Yeah, what if I've got 4,000 photos? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of defeats not, the purpose. Right, exactly. You're making a ton of work for me when this auto-tagging feature should be something super simple. But it is a cool concept because it should be, you know, like we were talking about a couple weeks ago with that auto-image identifying software, or web app, whatever it was, Um Sort of, if you have a photo of the tower, uh, the tower bridge in London, it would sort of automatically tag that as cityscape, city, London bridge, you know, sky clouds, that kind of stuff. So, so if you're looking for your photos or you know whatever, if it's something I guess that other people can search at some point or with Flickr, if somebody else is searching, you search for you know photos of London. Boom! If you didn't know that it was London or something, I don't know, that photo would show up. Um, you know, and, and that would be across the board with all kinds of things. So really a cool idea, maybe something that's still kind of being perfected as evidenced by, you know, the Flickr fiasco <laughs> last week. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another example of a technology that's kind of in its infancy stages. Uh, I remember many, many years ago, even before the iPhone was around using a voice to text technology, and it was absolutely terrible like i would it would be very i would be very lucky to get maybe five percent or ten percent of the words correct and now using siri and google and all these different voice to text technologies it for the most part gets 90 to 95 percent correct so this technology even though it's very embarrassing right now it'll get there definitely in like five years or so. right i don't even remember life before the iphone so i don't even know what you're talking about <laughs> well you're kind of young you're well, yeah. you're much younger than me well, not much younger, but you're younger than me. Um, so yeah, so Google Photos does have like a kind of like an image recognition feature where it kind of tags people automatically. I have seen preliminary preliminary reports that people were searching the word dog and it was showing pictures of cats instead. So, you know, it's not bad, but it's obviously not perfect. But over the years, and especially now that we're uploading pretty much unlimited photos to Google's database, and we're going to be going in and correcting these things, I can only imagine that we're only helping Google make this technology and make these algorithms even better. Yes, I agree. 
Yep. So the next thing that Google announced was offline maps and Chrome for developing countries. And I believe this might also be available to countries like the United States and Canada Mm -hmm. eventually. But this is definitely important for countries that don't really have solid Internet connection, even though, you know, Google's trying to help with that loom. Right. Did you you, I I didn't watch this part of the keynote. Um, Did they explain how this works? Um, because I know, uh, that there are certain features and certain services you can use offline, but with something like maps and kind of like a custom plotted GPS, I'm going from point A to point B, show me the way, uh, without cell. Uh, how is that? I mean, I know like, okay, for instance, um, I, my car has, and you know, it's a, it's a car from the mid two thousands, uh, has like a GPS DVD that you slide in. Uh, so it doesn't have to draw off the internet, but it draws off a map database that's stored on this DVD. Right. Um, did uh, Did Google explain what exactly they're doing to give you this offline maps and offline directions? Because I know, like when I visited the Bahamas, something like this would have been awesome because the maps was the data draw that I was using. I wasn't cruising YouTube, nothing like that. Not with the roaming charges that AT and T has. Um, uh, so I I don't know. I, I would love to know how this works. I ju- it, ju- it just seems really interesting, and I don't know if they talked about it at all. First of all, what what is a DVD? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, they didn't really explain how it works, but to my understanding, is kind of like GPS devices that are in cars now. They would be preloaded. So obviously, you know, in a developing country, let's say a small town in India, the phones that they have are probably very specific to those towns or those countries. So those phones in specific will probably be would probably come preloaded with maps of that town and possibly um, you know a much larger area in India. These people typically are not traveling to other countries because of um, their situation. So I would assume it they would just have to preload just a little bit of map data. And of course, these phones now all have GPS. And as long as the map data is already preloaded and installed on a phone, you don't need an, a connect, an active internet connection in order to use GPS. Right, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's what I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. So, But that is kind of um, very exciting that Google is now offer will be, I think later this year, they'll be offering offline maps and Chrome. I'm not sure exactly how the Chrome thing works, being able to browse. I would assume it's kind of similar where you can load or preload data, but I mean, there's so many websites out there. I'm it, not sure exactly. It downloads the entire internet to your phone. <laughs> it's got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but it anyway. would be interesting to see if uh, Google does uh, yeah. explain how that. No, works. it's a cool thing. And then so that they, but they not only talk about their phones, of course. I mean, Android is huge with the phones, but wearables have been everywhere. Uh, from the Apple Watch to – I mean it seems like every day I see a new article about this fitness app or I just showed you an article before about a set of smart shoes uh, that Lenovo is talking about or something. So I mean the, this this wearable technology is everywhere. Um, I Again, I didn't watch the entire keynote. Uh, I didn't watch most of the keynote in fact. Um, what, what, what did they talk about as far as Android Wear or – it is called Android Wear, right? It is, um, yeah. So, I mean, what's the deal with that? Like, I saw a graphic that was like, hey, works with any phone. That's about the extent of the Android Wear stuff um, that I'm familiar with. Yeah, so um, I don't remember his name, but some guy got on stage and he basically started screaming, we all love watches. It was kind of strange. But um, 
they announced a bunch of new updates to Android Wear. Nothing revolutionary, but kind of to put it kind of in line with the Apple Watch and go a little bit above the Apple Watch. They're introducing a feature called Always On, or I guess it already has a feature called Always On where you can choose to see the time at all times, but now they're bringing that to application. So if you're in a grocery store and you have a grocery list on your watch, you can have, instead of, you know, when you 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 put your arm down, that watch would typically go off or go back to the time. Now you can choose to keep that on and it would kind of go into battery saving mode where everything would kind of turn black and white. So that grocery list will always be on your phone. I mean, sorry, your, your, um, your Android Wear watch. Right. Kind of nice. Okay. Um, they also have these glanceable gestures where you can kind of flick your wrist in order to scroll through certain things. It looked incredibly tiring. I'm not sure if I would do it. But that's the thing. Well, I mean, if, you, if you're reading like the latest crime novel from, you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes or something, then I, I would I would get that it would be tiring. But if it's just a matter of like, eh, what's next? Uh, you know, actually, it does seem kind of tiring. Never mind. I take that back. <laughs> there you go. You got to try it a few times. Yeah. I, I took I've taken a few phone calls on my Apple Watch and, you know, it's good for the first like three seconds. And then after that, it's like, yeah, I want to put my arm down. Let me switch to the iPhone. Right. Um. And, and, you know, they also introduced a few other things like a new app launcher to make apps load faster and a bunch of small other updates. Um, one was kind of funny. They allow you to now draw out emojis and it would recognize it and it would convert it into a, an actual emoji. So some guy drew out a champagne glass and mm-hmm. Android Wear recognized that it was a champagne glass and it basically allowed him to choose the different types of alcoholic beverages to send to his friend. So, you know, nothing revolutionary, but Google's Google's just keeping that Android Wear going. They're keeping it real. Keeping it real. Now, one thing that they did um, release that was kind of huge in terms of the Android ecosystem is Android Pay. And this is 100% directed at Apple Pay. And you can basically take Tim Cook's speech from the Apple keynote where they introduced Apple Pay and it would basically be Android Pay. And this is another thing that I'm not really upset about because the technology is almost identical. It uses fingerprint technology to verify payments. It doesn't give your the reseller or retailers your credit card number. It generates a virtual credit card number. You know, the whole shebang with Apple Pay, basically rename it to Android Pay and it's the same stuff. Now, the reason this is a good thing, I think, is because it uses NFC. It uses the same technology. So the fact that both Apple and Android or Apple and Google have the exact same thing, it's pushing companies to accept these payments. Yeah, and, and this is backwards compatible all the way back to KitKat, which is a couple operating systems ago. Right. right. So even if you're not on the latest, I think it's backwards compatible. So even if you're not on the, yes, you're right. Um, even if you're not on the latest operating system, you will be able to use it. Obviously, not all of them have fingerprint technology. So mm. there was, I think The Verge maybe may have posted an article that um, he basically stole one of his friend's unlocked Android devices and purchased something with it because there wasn't much security there. But any of the newer phones or most of the newer phones have fingerprint technology now, which makes it almost impossible to, you know, so I actually got a mini argument with somebody the other day where they said, what if I grab your Apple watch or your iPhone and try to purchase something and your Apple watch isn't on you or something like that, something weird. And I'm like, it has fingerprint technology. Unless you steal my finger, you're not getting into my phone. But anyways, so yeah, the point is 
Android Pay is basically Apple Pay, but you know it's pushing the whole industry forward, which you can't really be annoyed mm. about. Yeah, no, it's cool. I, we've talked about the Apple Pay and now Android Pay style of paying, and you know, I, I'm specifically skeptical about it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it eventually catches on because how can you say that something absolutely won't catch on eventually? But it's just such a vastly different way to pay for things than even our generation has ever paid for anything that I think there's going to be a, a, a major period of adjusting. I mean, even I think I'm sure a lot of people's grandparents still pay for virtually everything with like cash or check. Oh, they you know, do. Even even you know the idea of a credit card um, is still kind of like an uncomfortable thing. Um, so you know, it, it, it's just a big it's it's a big deal. It's you know you're throwing your money around and it's a totally new, totally foreign, totally different, um, totally hip way to pay for stuff. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's not that I would never see it catching on, but I think it's going to take some time. It will, and we're going to see different payment methods. I mean, this one is definitely by far, I would say, the most secure out of, I mean, actually today, actually this morning, I got an alert from Bank of America that someone tried to use one of my credit cards that I haven't used in months to buy something on Postmates, and it was obviously declined right away because I don't even have Postmates in well, Colorado. And you're not, yeah, you're not signing up for the, the post office dating site anyway, so what the, <laughs> what the heck. Um. Yeah, so, uh, you know, these new payment methods are very secure, and I wouldn't be surprised, you know, 10, 20 years down the line if we were able to embed chips inside of our finger and just basically touch on a terminal with our finger and just, boom, paid. Yeah, Crazy, see, I, but... I, I think I'll go to the grave before I end up signing up for something like that, but... <laughs> but hey, <laughs> you never know. know. You right. might do it. Never say never. But anyway, what, what else if do Apple, we have? If Apple announces it, you would do it. <laughs> um. Another thing Google talked about is the smart home, which is also a, a, a technology or technology that's in a very strange spot right now because nothing really connects to each other. Nothing really talks to each other. So Google is introducing this thing called Brillo. That's B-R-I-L-L-O. I thought that was like a pasta company. Or the Brillo pad. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. It's weird. But... I, I believe from what I understand, it's kind of like the back end to connect all of these devices and all of your phones together. And I believe it'll also work with iOS, I think. And I'll get to that in a moment. Google is actually paying a lot of attention to iOS, which is really nice. But Google recognizes that, you know, your phone doesn't really talk well with your thermostats or your cars or your televisions or your dishwashers. And this Brillo, which I think is kind of like Apple's HomeKit, is the back end to make all of these things work in symphony. Is that the word I'm looking yep. for? Yeah, yeah. There you go. I'm intelligent. Um, <laughs> so I don't really have much detail, and Google hasn't really provided much detail about this, but it definitely sounds like something that's needed, especially mm. with these home devices, and I'm sure they'll be giving developers SDKs so they can work that into the devices so they can talk well with the phones. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the show before, um, and it, yeah, it's just generally a cool idea that the smart home um, is is a really neat idea, you know, just the automation of who knows what based on your personal preference and all of that. Um, it's pretty cool. The closest I am to a smart home is like, you know, the thermostat on my air conditioner that automatically ticks on and off, you know what I mean? Uh, and, you know, it, there's a little bit of that in there, but it's very analog compared to stuff like, you know, Project Brillo now and Apple Home or Apple Home Kit, excuse me. 
Um, so yeah, no, really cool. That that's super exciting stuff. It is actually speaking of thermostats, I was really hoping that Google would release an update to Nest or at least the Nest thermostat because now that they own Nest, it's been a few years, I think, since they released the last update because I've been waiting. We just moved into a new home a few months ago and I've been waiting to purchase a bunch of things to make this home a little bit smarter. But I figured a new Nest would be just around the corner, but I guess I guessed wrong. Yeah. Dumb, um, dumb guess. Yeah, really. So moving down this list, HBO Now is coming to Android. Really not much to talk about there. Mm -hmm. HBO is kind of expanding across all devices, and now it's going to be on Android. Um, The next big thing, I think the last big thing that we're going to talk about is virtual reality. So last year at Google I.O., Google released this. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous, but they released a piece of cardboard. And it allowed you to fold this piece of cardboard, and it had two lenses on it. And you can slip your phone at the time. It was only Android phones. I mean, you could, you could have put your iPhone in there, but it wouldn't, wouldn't have done much. Um, you can put your Android phone inside of this piece of cardboard, hold it up to your face, and it would give you this virtual reality experience with combined with the, you know, the closed nature of the cardboard and the lenses and the software that was on your Android device. Right. Not for use in the rain. Right. Yeah. I would, I would imagine. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming it probably it doesn't. Unless it's some magic cardboard. I don't know. Um, but now, so now they release a new update and making its SDK available for iOS and Android. So it's really nice again, that Google is paying attention to iOS devices. And I think they've realized that iOS and Apple aren't going anywhere and it only makes sense to support both ecosystems. And unfortunately, as an Apple user, we're probably not going to see the same kind of response from Apple. Apple's never going to release any sort of SDKs to Android or Google. It's unfortunate. I wish they would because I wish, you know, both companies are doing amazing things. I wish they would work together on a lot of these things, but unfortunately it looks like Google is kind of pushing ahead with that and Apple's, you know. You know what feel I get um, looking at stuff, even like the Oculus Rift um, and this Google Cardboard and everything. I get the same feeling that I got years ago when I first saw like Motorola or Sony Ericsson or one of these companies release the, you know, like the slide up phone that you could watch TV on. And I remember thinking, that's so stupid. Nobody is ever going to, you know, sit there and hold a phone in their hand and be like, oh, I'm watching my TV show, you know, and now what, where are we? everyone's walking around with their portable television, with their portable computer, with their phone in their hand, watching YouTube, you know, Hulu, Netflix, you know, everything, everything you can imagine streamed through this device that you hold. And it's that same feeling that I get when I look at something like these virtual reality viewers um, and stuff like the Oculus Rift where you look at it and you think, there's no, I, I look like an idiot. That's so clunky. It's so cumbersome. It's never going to be something that anybody's going to want to use. Um, but I, I think it will. And I think it's going to be something that's going to end up being pretty popular. I um, think it may. I mean, like, just like you, I'm looking at these things, especially the cardboard, which looks absolutely ridiculous. But even the Oculus Rift, which looks a little bit more decent than the, some of the other ones. And I think to myself, I'm not going to wear this, especially in public, maybe at home to kind of experience, like, you know, get into the game that I'm playing. But Oculus Oculus Rift, I think, came out today or yesterday and said it's going to be about $1,500 if you don't have a gaming PC to buy this thing. Mm-hmm. That's pretty expensive for this virtual reality thing. Obviously, the yeah. cardboard is um, much cheaper than that. But one thing that Google did announce that 
kind of makes me think that this may catch on is they're announcing, they announced this program called Expeditions, or at least as part of the program, and teachers can apply to get cardboard and it, with, it comes with phones, and they can basically give them out to their students to use in the classroom, and they can take them on virtual field trips to places they can't physically get to. So if you're, you know, a, a small school in India and you want to experience some of the United States or you want to experience Scotland or whatever it might be, you can put put on this very cheap virtual headset made of cardboard and you can take your class on an expedition, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, if you want to experience Scotland, just get in the shower first and foremost. <laughs> and that's that's kind of Scotland. But no, I no, I kind of agree with you. I, I think, you know, I don't know, there's Google has so many of these fringy products. I mean, I was looking at the notes and you mentioned that there was no mention of updating Google Glass. Mm. Um, instead, there was just this, you know, push toward this virtual reality. And I mean, Google Glass, I know it wasn't technically virtual reality, but it was sort of this hanging a screen in front of your face idea that you see in virtual reality. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and I saw, I don't know if you want to get to it right now, but the GoPro camera rig um, that, you know, Google partners with GoPro and they have, what is it, 16 GoPros uh, mm-hmm. would fit into this rig. It looks like you could kind of control all of them at once, multi-camera control. Um, and I, I mean, crazy expensive to buy, you know, like if you get the highest quality GoPro black or GoPro 4, I'm sorry, uh, and put it into there. Uh, it's, you know, multi-thousands of dollars to fill um, 16 of them into there. Uh, so and, and I mean, I watched the video on my phone, uh, or I'm sorry, not my phone, on my computer, and it's very difficult to watch. Uh, now, I'm not watching it through Google Cardboard. I'm not watching it through one of these virtual reality things. On my computer, it looked very underwhelming, an insane amount of distortion and all this other stuff. Um, did you watch the video? Did you check it out? Uh, I did. Actually, the only one I did watch was the one they demoed during the keynote. And I think, was it the was one the where they were like riding drifting? the bike? Oh, no, no. The one I saw was like cars like drifting around the person, like racing by. Oh, that one I didn't see. Skidding around. It was, I mean, but I don't even know that I can give it a fair audit because. I'm not. I'm not watching it through the the uh, the medium of the the Google Cardboard. Do you right. know what I'm saying? So exactly. if I'm looking at it on my flat screen, I mean, I can't sit here and pan Google for it uh, because I don't know. I don't have the hardware to to really look at it. Right. And the interesting thing is, you brought up the GoPro 16 camera rig, and that's one option that you can do if you have a lot of money and you want to spend, you know, to really make this stuff professional, you can simply, or you will be able to at some point, simply buy this rig with all the GoPros. But what one thing I love about Google and their open ecosystem is they're offering the rig basically for free. They're giving people the schematics, schematics? Mm-hmm. It's a big word. Um, and they're, you're, they're telling you like what angles you have to uh, point the cameras at and how you have to angle them and stuff. So if you have your own cameras, I mean, even still, you have to buy 16 cameras. But if you do already have some cameras or you just want a very cheap rig, you can definitely build one based on Google's advice. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy expensive. I think it's called a GoPro or Google Jump. I don't remember which. Right. Yeah. GoPro Jump, Jump. or Google. Yeah. Google so, Jump, I think. Yeah, but but if, I mean, if you're interested in checking it out again, tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 16, and that's the number 16. There you go. And yeah, no no news about Google Glass. The last we heard is that the project is not dead yet. They're just kind of reworking it to make it not look like this big piece of glass in front of your face. And you know, I was hoping they would be ready 
by Google I.O., but like looks like they're not. But I'd rather them take them t their time and try to get it right. Now, one, the last thing I did mention that's not on this Verge article is they kind of touched on the Google self-driving cars, which will apparently start hitting the road legally this summer, I believe very soon, maybe next month or the month after. And they showed a demo of kind of how it works and how it analyzes the road. It still kind of terrifies me. Yeah, as you say, it's terrifying and exciting all at the same time, right? It is because we will get there. There will when we're right now. You drive on the road, I drive on the road, and someone cuts you off. You kind of drive by them. You look, oh, it's like an eight-year-old man. He doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't know how to drive. And we scream, oh, this old man doesn't know how to drive. When we're that age, that phrase will not exist anymore. But because by that time, people like myself and you, who are eighty years old, will just get in our car, tell it where to go, and it's going to go. Right. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, but Uber's not gonna be happy about that. Actually, no, Uber will still actually, have. Uber they'll, is. They'll just have their road. Right, they're they're Uber's they demoing. Are, yes, right? they're, they're making that. their own. Yeah, you're you're dead on correct about that. That's mm -hmm. right. Um, yeah. So <laughs> so I, the Uber drivers will not be happy about right. that. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of it, right? From Google, I I mean, there was obviously a, a lot of details that we didn't really fill in there, but kind of like a a show wrap up. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff. Google has their hand in a lot of really interesting things. Um, and I have to say on a very personal level, I'm very happy that they seem to be stepping over the border, uh, the 38th parallel, if you will, and saying like, hey, Apple, let's work on some of this stuff for the good of the people. Yeah. Um, you know, let's let's make stuff compatible. Uh, people who are going to buy Apple stuff are going to buy Apple stuff. People who are going to buy Google stuff are going to buy Google stuff. Let's just compete where we can compete and let's do what's good for the for the people where we can do good for the people. So I really like to see Google doing that and kind of extending the olive branch, um, you know, much to the much to the shame of, of Apple. Because I, I totally. I, yeah. yeah, I totally agree. And I just wish, like I mentioned before, I just wish that Apple would kind of go on that path and offer some of their tools to Android and Google and other developers. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see in less than two weeks, I think on June 8th, I believe Apple is having their WWDC conference and they are rumored to release a feature that's going to directly compete with Google now. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that works. And obviously a bunch of other things, iOS nine, OS 10, whatever the heck they're going to call it this time fountain. I don't know, whatever it is. Right. Um, and it, obviously we're going to be covering that on the podcast, but it'll be interesting to see yeah. how they respond. No, absolutely. So moving on from all the Google goodness, another thing that was released today was Pixelmator for the iPhone. And Pixelmator has been around for ages, I think years already. And they have basically a Mac application that directly competes against Photoshop. And they release, recently released uh, an iPad app back in October, and now they have brought it to the iPhone. And actually, the people at Pixelmator reached out to me this morning, and they basically said, look, we have this new app on the iPhone, Pixelmator, and you can go buy it on iTunes for $4.99. So I emailed them back. I said, oh, it looks really interesting. We'd love to talk about it on the podcast tomorrow. So they sent me a code and I played around with it today. Uh, so full disclosure, I did not pay for it. They sent it to me to play around with. And for the most part, it's a very solid application in terms of a photo editing application on an iPhone. It's not perfect. It has a lot to fix and a lot to improve. 
one thing that kind of stuck out to me in terms of things they have to improve is I couldn't figure out a way to see a before and after. Mm-hmm. You know, on Instagram and other applications, if you just kind of hold down your finger on the photo or two fingers or something like that, you'll be able to see the before. And if you let go, you'll be able to see the after. I didn't really find a way to do that. So maybe it's something that's either not very user friendly or just not there at all. Gotcha. But for the most part, I mean, they have healing methods, which a little bit slow. I took a photo and I kind of tried to like circle over an area, like a little piece of dirt that shouldn't really be on the photo. And very similar to Photoshop's content to where Phil, it definitely removed that piece, but it took, uh, I would say maybe 10 seconds or so. Not terrible, but you know, I'm, I'm running on the latest iPhone 6 Plus, so I would expect it to be a little bit faster, especially, you know, me trying to heal a very small area. Not bad. It'll be interesting to see how it stacks up to the Photoshop uh, app. Oh, the one that's coming to possibly at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Wriggle so, I mean, or whatever would... it's called. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, just because, I mean, that's going to be the market uh, that they're in. Um, and I guess probably Pixelmator will probably stand or fall based on whether or not Adobe is willing to include it with Creative Cloud subscription. Because if that Photoshop is included with Creative Cloud, you can pretty well, I would imagine, kiss Pixelmator goodbye. Because why are you going to pay $5 for something that's probably not nearly as compatible and kind of an unknown when you have the power and brand of Photoshop and it's free you know, yeah. with, with whatever you're buying? And I have to imagine that anything Adobe releases from here on out, if you have a Creative Cloud membership, you're going to have whatever that is. Right. Yeah, I would think that would make sense. So yeah. anyway, moving on. You, we, were you good with that? Yeah, per, per, for the most part, I mean, it's a it's a photo editing app. It does a bunch of things. It adds filters. It does adjustments. You can heal stuff. And it's five bucks. It's five bucks. Not bad. Decent application for a 1.0. That's about it. Cool. All right. Well, on to the next story. Uh, there's a pretty cool story on Petapixel earlier this week. Um, a software engineer, Dan Vanderkam, has gathered thousands of old historical photos and plotted them onto these digital maps on his two websites, Old SF for San Francisco and Old NYC for New York City. Uh, and basically, it's plotting all of these old historical photos and kind of their locations, so where they were shot. It's pretty neat. All you have to do is click on the dot uh, on this website, and it'll sort of show you all the historical photos of that particular uh, area that have been shot that he was able to find. He sort of browsed through a lot of these different data data banks of these photos um you can check out this pretty sweet body of work um again the the website is old sf or the other website old nyc and again the links are over on the blog tutvid.com slash we geeks slash episode 16 yeah i took a look at i took a look at some of these photos earlier when you linked it over to me and i don't know what it is about old photos of old places i i can't get enough of this stuff i love looking at this old architecture and just kind of looking at pictures of people walking around and trying to put myself in those situations in Mm. that era and it's just really cool like when i visited london it's so different from united states like the metropolitan united states with all this these massive skyscrapers and seeing these old buildings in london that have been there for centuries it, yeah. it was just so cool and seeing these old photos that are black and white and sepia i don't know i find it really fascinating yeah that kind of comparison between that's what it looked like back then here's the same exact spot here's what it looks like now um there's just kind of a neat 
connection. But speaking of old things, the Canon 5D line as of May 28th, which is the day we're recording this, the Canon 5D line turns 10 years old today. Back in Ooh. 2005, Canon released the Canon, the original 5D cameras. It wasn't the original Canon DSLR by any means, but it was the first Canon DSLR. It was, I think, 12, me 12 point something megapixels. It was smaller. Most of Canon's 1D series up until that point um, the, the grip was very bulky. It was, you know, kind of bigger, clunkier cameras. This was a, a, a fairly small full frame camera, um, for about 30, it was about 3,500 bucks when it came out, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, it was just, you know, just the right price for the, just, just the right amount of camera. Uh, and it was a total hit. A few years later, the 5D Mark II came out. The 5D Mark II was the very first DSLR to have, uh, 1080p, you know, quote unquote production quality video, not really production quality video, but sort of um, insane quality video in a camera that virtually anybody could afford to get their hands on uh, from amateur to pro. Um, and Vincent LaFerre shot a very, uh, very well known, relatively well known, I should say, sort of short film with the Canon. 5D Mark II before it officially came out. Canon lent him one, I think, for like 36 hours or something, and he took like this whirlwind trip around New York City. It's pretty cool. I will link that in uh, the blog post. Uh, let me actually just make a note here so I don't forget about that. Uh, and then after the 5D Mark II, you get the 5D Mark III, which kind of improved on all of that. It finally gave Canon a professional level um focusing system. I mean, for the longest time with the, the 5D Mark II focusing in low light, or I mean, I've even told people, you know, if I'm photographing somebody with the Mark II, um, like white people, uh, Asian people are easier to get a good focus on than a black guy or something, you know, especially if I'm shooting around, you know, sunset when things are starting to get dark, the camera, depend, especially depending on the lens, the, the original 2470 lens is notorious for being difficult to focus. Uh, and then you introduce a lot of elements, you know, either a dark setting or, you know, just, just not enough contrast between features on somebody's face, things like that. It can be very difficult for the camera to pick up and really lock focus well. Uh, so the 5D blew away the the Mark I'm sorry the the Mark three blew away the Mark two when it came to focusing low light capability ISO um, it was incredible and the 1080p video uh, went up uh, as far as the, there were there were minor issues with some of the video in the 5D Mark II however I should say the 5D Mark II it was used in a number of productions one of the Avengers movies they used the 5D Mark II to film parts of it mm. um, the TV show 24 large parts of it, it was either like season 7 or season 8 I can't remember which one were filmed with the 5D Mark II uh, there was an entire episode of that TV show House uh, that was filmed on the 5D Mark II and there have been a number of other productions as well so by no means is it a slouch um, but the 5D Mark III takes it up even another notch. Uh, and now on the heels or, or after the 5D Mark III, I should say, we're expecting the 5D Mark IV in a number of months. A lot of people are hoping for 4K video. Well, maybe the 4 in the 5D Mark IV will stand for 4. If Canon hey. doesn't release 4K video in the 5D Mark IV, I am done with Canon. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> yeah. quote me on that. Right. I am done with Canon. Nikon, here I come. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us would be surprised if there's not 4K video. It's kind of been pumped up a lot. Uh, but meanwhile, waiting for the 5D Mark IV, Canon, and we have talked about this in the podcast before, has dropped the 5DS and the 5DSR, which are going to be available in June. So sometime in the next 30, 35 days, the 5DS and the 5DSR should be dropping. And they are 51 megapixel cameras, um, not really video centric at all definitely 
photographer's cameras um, and they look amazing. Crazy sharpness, crazy uh, resolution. Obviously at 51 megapixels, it's almost like entering the medium format uh, foray, but not really because medium format's its own beast. and You can't really compare a standard DSLR sensor uh, to a, a great medium format uh, thing. But yeah, the 5D line has come an incredible it leaps and bounds in the last 10 years and it has just been the most it's been the best selling line of prosumer not even prosumer they are professional quality cameras um in the history of digital cameras um they're just they've they've blown everything out of the water the mark ii was an insanely popular camera the mark three was a crazy popular camera um, it's probably going to be diluted a little bit with the 5DS and the 5DSR because people are going to be like, well, do I get them or do I get the Mark IV? Or do I go back and get the Mark III? Um, all of that. So really a lot of really cool stuff. But yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely something uh, of, of noteworthy attention. 5D line turns 10 years old today. It's crazy. And to see kind of looking back how far, I mean, the like you said, the original 5D wasn't even a DSLR. Mm -hmm. And what's even crazier is to kind of think what, I mean, if, if it's still around, what will the 5D be like in another 10 years? Yeah. I mean, will, will it be a 5D? I don't know. But what will camera technology be like in 10 years? Yeah. No, it's, it's, a, it's insane to think just where digital photography has come in the last 15 years. You know, yeah. Ten years ago, if you if you would have, tr I'd be probably nobody would really be able to think about the technology we have in our hands right now. So we can't even probably predict what we're gonna have ten years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, crazy. I, I can't even wait. But one thing that's kind of really crazy and kind of going off of Canon technology is there was a university in Toronto. Actually, I was I was born not too far from that in Toronto. They created this dragonfly telescope array. And you're going to have to explain exactly how this works because to me it doesn't make much sense. But they basically took 10 lenses. They took 10 Canon lenses, the Canon 400mm f2.8 with image stabilization number two. And they kind of linked them all together in an array, a circular array. And each lens cost $10,000. So the whole telescope was $100,000. And they're basically photographing... These galaxies that are far, far away in space. I'm a huge space nut. I love space stuff. I love t looking at pictures of space and blah, blah, blah. Um, the photos to me, the ones that I saw, weren't that impressive. They were kind of white and they didn't really look like your typical galaxy. But the fact that this kind of rig is able to capture these galaxies, potentially thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of light years away, it's kind of crazy. But here's what I don't, and maybe you can explain this. I don't understand how using 10 lenses of the same type um, performs better than one very large lens. How, well, explain that to me. It doesn't. Okay. Um, it doesn't. But it, it's all about what you're using the telescope for. Okay. Um, so I went and I looked. Well, first, let me read this quote from Petapixel. And then I went to University of Toronto's page where they talk about the telescope. And they have some interesting stuff there. Uh, kind of explaining why this is. Because like you said, the photos are not 
what you or I visually would say is very impressive. It's like a black and white kind of blobby photo. Uh, Petapixel says, quote, according to the university, the dragonfly, which is dragonfly telephoto array, can actually see things that the largest, most advanced telescopes can't, thanks to the nano coatings found on the optical glass. This is that L glass that they have oh. in their L series, which helps to reduce scattered light that often gets in the way of details. The multiple lenses designed to mimic a dragonfly's compound eye, hence the name, right, uh, also overcome unwanted light interference since the image from each lens can be compared with the others. So there you go. You have sort of these 10 comparative images instead of just your one source. So you sort of have 10 sources instead of one. Scientists say the telescope is 10 times more efficient than its nearest rivals. Now, on the University of Toronto page, they say... Uh, that this Dragonfly telephoto array is this is therefore executing a fully automated multi-year imaging survey of a complete sample of nearby galaxies in order to undertake the first census of ultra-faint substructures in the nearby universe. That's important because this means uh, that this array of lenses is what would be referred to as a survey scope or I guess a survey telescope or something. So it's not going to take the highest quality photos of the galaxy. In fact, you could look at these same galaxies that this thing is photographing and you're going to have much more zoomed in photos with color and with all kinds of crazy detail, right, that this is not getting. But this is – this this uh, – Dragonfly telephoto telescope's job is to detect the very faint parts of distant galaxies and to capture that. So it's not necessarily about getting this beautiful photo that you're going to publish for you and I to look at. This is something like the ultra nerdy space geeks would would be interested in. So it's not rocket science, but it's darn close. So, <laughs> but it's it. just it's just kind of cool that you can take you know these Canon lenses that theoretically you and I could buy if we were well to do um, and link them together and photograph galaxies. It's a 400 millimeter lens. That's crazy. That is so, crazy. And yeah. I've seen people use regular lenses, you know, combined with actual telescopes and take unbelievable photos. The question is now that we're, you know, kind of finding out that these lenses and this kind of array is able to capture this sort of detail. Do you think that NASA and other companies will use this kind of technology or use this methodology to apply to some of their much bigger telescopes that maybe either are in space or on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I would have to think you would, right? I mean, they know it's whatever this nano coating is that that's being put on these lenses that's allowing them to to reduce the scattered light that's going to get in the way of details. Remember, I mean, something like a lens flare or or some kind of reflected light on the surface of a lens element could block out an entire planet when it's as far away as some of these galaxies are. You know what I mean? So you're looking to get the the most uninterrupted, non-artifacty uh, image that you can possibly get. So. Yeah, it's really cool. And again, I'll link up to all this stuff over at the site, tutfit.com slash slash episode 16. The number 16, that is. Uh, on to the next article, not to belabor the telescope too much again. Uh, honestly, for me, kind of boring stuff, but just crazy that you can do that with Canon lenses. Yeah. Um, a little bit of like a hat tip of respect, I guess. Um, anyway, there's a Kickstarter that was launched just a couple days ago. Uh, the new Lomography, or the Lomography, excuse me, Petzval 58mm Boca Control 
art lens. Fancy. So this is this is basically a 58 millimeter f1.9 lens, not f1.8, f1.9, um, and it can you can mount it on a Canon or an Icon. In fact, you can mount it on a ton of different cameras as long as you get the correct adapter that includes four uh, micro four thirds cameras, um, and it provides it, it, the lens does this really cool effect. I don't know if you looked at this, Howard, yep. but it sort of gives you like this swirling bokeh background. It's very bizarre, um, but I would imagine in the right hands could be crazy cool. I look at this lens as something that could almost be used in a really interesting way with video. But what really makes it kind of different, uh, unlike, you know, because I mean, some people are comparing it's like a lens baby. And, and I mean, I do sort of compare it or, or, or describe it as sort of this um, uh, tilt shift meets free lensing uh, on lens baby's back porch. That's how I would put it, right? So it's kind of this like mix of all of these things, uh, some of which are, are pretty trendy right now, pretty popular. Uh, but the Petzval name is, is a pretty old name in photography. Um, but anyway, it has an additional dial on the lens, which by the way, the lenses are like these brass lenses. They look Oh, really they're gorgeous. Cool. Yeah, they're just like super cool, super retro look, and I dig the way they look. Um, and they're really not that expensive. Um, but it has this uh, ring that allows you to click from one to a seven. And basically the one is a very subtle, subtle uh, bokeh in the background and the seven is like full-on tornado you know going crazy back there um, so it's a really neat idea um, the 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 like super early ad adopters of the Kickstarter you could get the lens for like 300 bucks um, all those sold out so quickly like I said it, it launched about two days ago it's already raised on, on the north side of three hundred fifty thousand dollars already um, so it's it's already fully funded right isn't it like two hundred thousand they were trying to get uh, uh, one hundred thousand, actually. Okay, yeah, and they met. They met. They got over one hundred thousand. I think within the first two hours of launching the Kickstarter, so it went crazy quickly. Um, people bought into it, and the, you know, and if you look at what people are buying, what people are donating to, people are buying the lens. They're not doing the five and ten dollar donations. There's literally like three or five people that have done the three dollar donation. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So people want the lens, um, and it's you know. You might think it's a lens baby, but you're getting professional quality sharpness and optics with this lens. Um, you're probably going to be looking to drop six or seven hundred bucks on it now if you support the Kickstarter. They have already released or or developed a Petzval 85 millimeter lens that came before this one, which I believe is already out um, or is super close to coming out. So it's not like you have to worry about just throwing that kind of money away. It should pretty much be uh, a sure thing. But it's just kind of cool. I mean, it's a neat lens. It's a neat idea. Um, and if you're, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, definitely a cool lens. I would love to see one of these Petzvilles on, uh, you know, a, a Fuji camera where you're getting the insane dynamic range you're going to get with some of these, uh, Fujis and, you know, the crazy shallow depth of field of the Petzvill and also this bizarre, uh, bokeh effect or slap that thing onto like a Nikon D750 or a Canon 5D Mark III and shoot some crazy video with, it's just you have to go check it out. I mean, again, I got the link on the site, um, but you got to check it out and see the deal with this lens. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And it is a Kickstarter, which have had some issues with Kickstarter in, in the past. However, it's a pretty respectable company. And yeah. I would assume that this thing would actually ship a, a you know, uh, some things on Kickstarter simply don't ship. But the thing I like about this, and you mentioned lens baby, which I'm not a big fan of lens baby stuff because you can't really undo Mm -hmm. A lot of that stuff. The thing I, I like about this lens is I'm looking at the examples of the different bokeh lenses or levels. And yeah. level one is pretty much your normal bokeh. Mm -hmm. So if you don't really want that crazy effect, you're not stuck with it. You can right. just get like regular bokeh. 
Yeah, and 58 millimeters is a great focal length. Oh, it is, um, especially for and, portrait. And I saw, I don't remember if it was on F-stoppers or if it was on Petapixel or where it was. I saw somebody comment and say, oh, you could just do this effect with Photoshop. Why not just do it with Photoshop? Uh, number one. You can't no, really, yeah, not really. Yeah, number one. You, I mean, you could, but you have to be very skilled in Photoshop and it's going to take yep. a lot of time. That's number yep. one. And most people who think they could just go into Photoshop and apply that effect can't. Good luck. They, they think they can, but they can't because <laughs> you, you look at the rest of their Photoshop work and – they can't. I'll just put no, it to you that no, way. No, you can't. I mean, so if you're doing a shoot where you want to, you know, you want to turn over 45 or 50 photos, let's say it's an engagement session, you're not going to spend 20 hours <laughs> applying this effect to the background. Why, you know, if you have a lens you can plug in that gets it, um, you know, and, and go look through, you know, images that have been shot with it with a technique called free lensing. Um, it's it's an incredible, it's, it's a really cool effect. It's something that, yes, technically any of this you could do in Photoshop if you're skilled enough, if you can repaint enough stuff and all of that, sure. But a lot of these effects, free lensing, prisming, there's another one called prisming, um, and stuff like this lens baby. But the cool thing about this uh, this particular lens uh, is that it's the, the, the optical quality is so far and away greater than lens baby, or at least it purports itself to be. Um, that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get, you know, really high quality stuff from this lens. Like I would never, I would never want to take a lens baby out to shoot anything more than a hobby. And uh -huh. even at that, if I'm taking a photo that I know is low quality, I almost feel like I'm wasting my time. Um, but I mean, unless you know, it's the only camera I have with me. So you know, yeah, it's it's a really neat lens. It's a really cool idea. Uh, definitely encourage you to check it out if you're a photographer. At least worth knowing about. So even if you don't have the money to drop on it now, know that it's an option and probably going to become an option in the near future. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's a gorgeous lens. I would totally rock this thing on my cameras. Even though, even if I didn't want to um, get that bo crazy bokeh effect like level seven, I would right. totally rock this thing. Yeah, agreed. Now, moving on to our final piece of this week, Adobe actually uh, released this sneak peek of something that's coming up. Actually, it was their second sneak peek of this feature. I believe last year or maybe this last Adobe Max, they demoed this feature called dehaze or dehazing. And Terry White this week from Adobe gave another demo of how this thing works and how it works in Lightroom. And basically we've all been there, we've taken photos that are just a little bit too hazy, contains a little bit of fog, whatever it might be. And in Lightroom, I don't know exactly when, but sometime in the near future, now that Lightroom is kind of part of the Creative Cloud, we're going to have a dehaze slider, which allows you to slide it to the right to basically get rid of the haze. And, and you know, from the demos that we've seen, of course, very specific images are chosen for these demos. Yeah. It looks very impressive. It definitely get, not only gets rid of the haze, but the contrast is looks like the contrast is boosted a little bit and the colors look like they would match if that haze wasn't there. Of course, until we get our hands on it, this is one of the few features I do not have access to um, as a pre-release tester for Adobe. So I haven't used it yet, so I'm allowed to talk about the demo that was released. Um, and there is speculation that's also coming to Camera Raw within Photoshop as well, because typically the adjustments that are available in Lightroom are also available in Camera Raw because it's basically the same engine. Right. Um, when I... Oh, yeah. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let uh, you finish. Adobe did release um, a statement and they said the dehaze tool helps you 
easily reduce or remove haze common in many outdoor photos like landscapes. And they also note that the slider is set to zero. So not only can you slide it to the right to remove haze, but you could also slide it to the left to kind of introduce haze. Now I wasn't too impressed when they introduced haze. It kind of just looked like a fade effect, but definitely from the demo that we saw, removing haze looked quite impressive. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I don't know why they didn't just call the feature haze because you're not dehazing if you're adding haze. That's true. That's a good point. But yeah, because I, I, I did, I mean, when, when the, the demo that Terry White, uh, you know, put on YouTube or through the Creative Cloud channel, whatever, um, it is pretty impressive. I mean, it, it does a really good job. Um, and, and it is one thing that's difficult to get rid of. You can't you can't really just go into curves and be like, oh, I'll just boost the contrast and it'll right. be fine. It, it really needs to be targeted a little bit more than that. And there are ways to get around it. But it does look pretty cool. And even, you know, adding haze back to a photo. I mean, yeah, I looked at it just like you said, as much like a fade effect. But I don't know how many people know how to really apply a good fade effect. Um, because the really good fade effects, I mean, the really gritty ones you would do with like selective color in Photoshop. And in Camera Raw or Lightroom, you would really do it in curves. Not necessarily lifting the blacks, but you'd use curves and you'd drag your black. Your your, uh, your black level up that way. It just gives you a much better haze. So I think this will maybe make that feature a little bit more available to the masses. And what that tells me is a lot of this very like visco filmy style, uh, you know, faded photo. I guess really it started with Instagram. Instagram it's, was about to say right. Yeah. It's probably, I mean, it might blow up for a very tiny bit longer, but I feel like it's going to get very tired very quickly. Oh, I hate um, it already. And, right, and it's going to begin to go away. Um, so, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be cool to see it in Lightroom. It'll be sweet to see it in Camera Raw. Um, or, I mean, and even the Camera Raw filter within Photoshop, obviously, if it's within Camera Raw. So there's a lot of uh, great things uh, that can be done there. Now, before we finish up, Howard, I didn't talk to you about this before, but I think we should add a new segment to the show. Ooh, I'm excited. It's the first time Howard's hearing about oh, this. Oh, boy. Where we would alternate week to week. It's called the Quick Six. And I give you a this versus that, six of them, and you give me... You know, this versus that. So, like, I might say, like, you know, East Coast, West Coast. Give me what you think, right? So, okay, so let's kick it off here, all right? It's just going to be pretty Go quick. Pretty quick. Give me a quick explanation and just get through it. It'll be stuff about technology, personal stuff, whatever I feel like. And then next week, you get me, all right? Oh, boy. And we'll just okay. go back and forth. And if you guys have specific things you're wondering about, tweet them in. Hashtag we geeks. We'll see it. It'll be a bunch of fun. All right, so number one, coffee or espresso? Got to go with coffee. All right. Uh, number two, sneaker. Are you a sneakers guy or a dress shoes kind of guy? Uh, more of a sneakers kind of guy, but obviously in certain situations, you got to go with the dress shoes. Right. You're not going to go sneakers to a funeral, I would imagine. Well, you know, depends on who died. <laughs> it depends on who died. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to say that for some reason. All right. Number three, would you rather draw it or would you rather photograph it? And by draw it, I mean use Photoshop, use Illustrator, use your Wacom, whatever. Use your Cintiq. Oh, wait, you can't do that because your Cintiq died this week. It's so, been yeah, it's been on and off. Uh, oh, that's a good question because I'm not like the greatest fine artist, but in if, if it's like photo composition, I would rather do it on the computer. Um, yeah, let's go with the, the, the computer. So you draw it. Okay. Draw it. Uh, number, number four, being a Canadian. Canadians, I always say, are very nice unless you put a hockey stick in their hands. Maple Leafs or Kings now that you're – or you lived out in L.A.? Oh, I mean I've, I was born in Toronto, lived there for 22 years. I have to, especially with Mike Babcock I, becoming I the new gonna, coach. I, I am so – you have no idea how excited I am that the threw, Leafs may finally – Rebuild. Yeah, they I gotta go with the Maple Leafs. Yeah, they threw a lot of money at him, so he better do well. <laughs> All right, uh, number five, Marvel or DC? Ooh, gotta go with Marvel. Marvel. 
Yeah. Got a favorite? Got a favorite character in Marvel? Uh, Iron Man, probably. Okay. He's Marvel, right? I hope so. I or I'm gonna make a big fool of myself. Yeah, I believe probably. so. Uh, all right, and last but not least, Beats or any other brand of headphone. You know, I'm wearing Beats right now, as you can see in the video. Um, <laughs> I, I got the new Beats, which apparently have, are massively upgraded since the last ones. And I really haven't had much experience with other headphones other than like the Apple earbuds. So I really don't have much to compare it to. I'm quite happy with my Beats. So I'm going to go with Beats. Gotcha. Cool. And that's it. See, that wasn't too bad. Not bad. I got to figure out questions for you next time. Yeah. Well, I just made these up while we were going through the show. So. <laughs> oh, look at you. Yeah. Multitasking. So, yeah. But I guess that will actually officially about do it for this, the 16th episode of the We Geeks podcast. It will. We did get one. We're not giving away gift cards anymore until we get sponsors and stuff like that. We did get one question actually while the podcast was going from Matt on Twitter. He wants to know if we're going to be moving over to Google Photos from other paid photo storage apps. Um, I think it's too early to really definitively tell, mm -hmm. but my initial reaction to using Google Photos is yes. It will be interesting because I do use an iOS device and not Android primarily. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see if third-party applications can communicate with Google Photos. But it does seem like the Photos app on the iPhone and Google Photos kind of communicates. So maybe they sync, but too early to tell. But definitely unlimited free storage, yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't really use any other paid storage apps. Not right now. I kind of have a split between Dropbox. And Dropbox is more of like my upload it from my phone, like from my Rode app on my phone. If I'm using my smart lab, I always upload to Dropbox and I'm quickly transferring it out of there. You and I transfer files back and forth on Dropbox. We're slapping stuff back and forth to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so Dropbox is more of like a temporary holding area for me. Uh, Google Drive, I got a lot of stuff spread across a few Google Drives. Um, I, don't I know. do I, use honestly, Amazon S3 for my website stuff, but that's kind of different. Right? Yeah, that's a little bit different. But I, but I, to that point though, I, that's almost what I would use this for is uh, more of a cloud backup than anything else. I wouldn't I wouldn't even be interested in using it as any kind of uh, viewing platform, even though I know that's really kind of what it is. It would just sort of be like, if the crap totally hits the fan, I'll at least have some of these photos somewhere that I can go. I mean, granted, they're not gonna be the highest quality. They're not gonna be, you know, it's, it's not optimum for what I'm talking about doing, but for free, unlimited, um, you know, and yeah, like you said, it, it is a little early to tell exactly how it's going to integrate. If it's a total pain in the neck, no, I won't be going for it. Um, but if it's easy and it's kind of seamless and it works, uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Why not? Right. Um, yeah. and like I said, from my early, uh, explorations with this thing, very easy to use and it seems promising. Yeah. So there you go. So that'll do it for episode number 16 of the We Geeks podcast. Again, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Isolo Studios. Nathaniel's at Tutvid. We are on SoundCloud, which you can comment along with the podcast. It's really cool. Go Super follow cool. us there. Head over to iTunes. Leave us a review and follow us there. We're getting a very nice amount of listens on iTunes. Um, so thank you for everything. And if you, you know, if you love the podcast, just share it with your friends. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Tell your grandmother. I'm sure she would love it. Hey, it'll give her something to listen to at least. And of course, check out all of the details from the podcast. Links, screenshots, not of us, not yet. Videos coming soon. Mm. Uh, over at tutfit.com slash wegeeks slash episode 16. So that's about it, right? That will do it. See you guys next week for another episode. Number Alrighty 17. Yep, yeah, 17. Alrighty, guys, take care. See ya. See ya.